you don't have to go out and tell people they're wrong. Like, it's okay. Like, you do need to actually faithfully represent what you believe, but don't think of it in terms of like an either or. Like, if I'm serving with a, if I go out and I serve the homeless with my Muslim friend, he might think that I think he's wrong. I'm like, if you live your whole life that way, like, you'll never do anything. Like, people yeah. are always going to be reading into what you're doing. But what you do need to do is just be a faithful representation of what you believe. Live it, live it boldly. Don't hedge on anything and just simply be who you are for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the church. And don't think about it in terms of like, did I, did I uh, make sure that they understood that I think they're wrong? Welcome back to the Sandhills Podcast. My name is Pastor John. I'm joined today by Dr. Trevor Castor of CIU, the Intercultural Studies Department. We're really excited for this conversation. We'll be talking about the Abrahamic faiths. How do Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all relate? We all claim Abraham as uh, the founder and kind of starting origin of the stories of our faith. And so this will be a great conversation. We're very excited for it. This is our season closeout. So we thank you guys for your support throughout the season. It's been awesome. We do this to help encourage your faith and your understanding of what it means to be a Christian and how to engage the world uh, with the message of Christ. And so we're just so thankful for each of you. Uh, we thank you for your, your likes, your subscribes, your comments. If you're interested in, in what you want to see for the next season, please drop a comment. We would love to see it so we can talk about the things that you would find beneficial. So without further ado, Dr. Trevor Castor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Yeah, Good absolutely. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to faith? Uh, How did you get to CIU and, and oh. teaching what you do? <clears throat> I came to faith when I was maybe a little late into my 16th year of life. Uh, I My girlfriend at the time had become a Christian at a Pentecostal revival, uh, the Brownsville revival in Pensacola, Florida. She was radically transformed, and I felt like at that time in my life, like, you know, Jesus had stolen my girlfriend, and I was really upset about it, and yeah. I didn't know anything about the gospel, so... Eventually, I, I got to hear the gospel through her and a number of other people, and then actually going to the Pentecostal revival myself, uh, decided to follow Jesus. And from there, I ended up uh, bypassing college. I didn't want to go to college. I just thought barely survived high school. The idea of spending four more years in school was not appealing at all. Mm -hmm. So I joined the only mission agency I could kind of find that would take anybody, which was called YWAM. Yeah. He didn't need a college degree. He didn't need a degree in Bible um, I used to joke, you just needed a pulse and a testimony and they would send you anywhere. So I joined YWAM, spent seven years in YWAM, lived among Muslims wow. in South Asia. Um, my wife and I got married when we were 19. She's actually the girl that became a believer when I was 16. I just went really? back and yeah, solid. So I just went wow. back and asked her, you know, would you be That's a missionary amazing. with me and go to YWAM? <laughs> and so we ended up living. Wow. In a 100% Muslim country, and it wasn't until we were living there that I realized that I didn't actually know that Muslims believed in Jesus. I didn't know that Muslims were sort of obligated to read the Bible. I didn't know that they believed in the Bible. Like, mm -hmm. was, I just had all these questions that I didn't even know existed until I went and lived among Muslims. And then we came back. And I wanted to get those questions answered. So I ended mm. up coming to CIU after like a seven-year gap year of college. Wow. So what year did you graduate from CIU? I have no idea. I don't remember. <laughs> I was 25 when I started. I did the undergrad, and then I went in. I did the master's degree in Muslim studies. Uh, it's called Muslim-Christian Relations now. And then the guy who was my mentor in the grad school, Dr. Warren Larson, he had like a like a plan, like he was going to retire. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know, like his plan was like, you're going to be my protege. And so like oh, when wow. I graduated, I was like, man, I would love to work with this guy. And he's like, great, because I've got a plan. You know, you're going to take over and do what I do so I can retire. And I was like, oh, yeah, I wanted to work with you, but he wanted to retire. Wow. So now we keep in contact, you know, by phone and email and stuff. He's living in Canada, but he was running this Wimmer Center for Muslim Studies and uh, I became the director of the Zwemer Center. And they, of course, like, you got to do a PhD. I don't know how I, my whole goal was to avoid going to college. And I ended up doing a PhD <laughs> like seven years later for the next, you know, 16 years I was in school or whatever. But yeah, that's how I ended up here. I ended up studying about Islam, 
there's not like a, a super spiritual story behind it. I just heard there was like a billion Muslims in the world at the time. And I was like, yeah, they need Jesus. Like, I'm, and I'm going to go tell them. I had no clue there what it I is. was doing. Um, didn't, like I said, didn't know even what questions to ask. Wow. And then I came back and I was like, all right, I need to understand Muslims because I'm not sure that I even know where to begin. Because I was like, we got to start with Jesus, thinking that I was going to tell them something they'd never heard. And right. they're like, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. They're like, oh, Isa, like, And you're like, pardon? <laughs> so, yeah. And then I spent the next, uh, gosh, I think I've been doing this for 13 years. So, yeah, I've been studying and working and living and doing the Muslim thing for about 20 years. Wow. That is amazing. When you're telling that that story about how you just heard about that there were Muslims and you just wanted to go out and engage them, I, the first thing that popped into my mind was just like the very first missionaries that were like, what direction is everyone else? Okay. <laughs> they just And they just went for it. Yeah, we YWAM had this very intense uh, idea that the only missions work to be done was in the 1040 window, which is kind mm. of an old school term at this point. And it was almost like you just need to draw, you know, kind of a square on a map in the 10 degree and 40 degree lat long and throw a dart and see where it lands. And that's where you should go. It was yeah. very much just like, hey, there's a huge need. Who's willing to go? I wish it was more spiritual than that, but it literally was like, but you're like there it there's, is. A, there's a lot of people out there that need Jesus and uh, I'm just going to go tell them. And so now we're looking at, you know, like 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. And there's been some good things that have happened, but the, the vast majority of Muslims still don't have any access to the gospel. Um, mm. But yeah. And so that brings us, you, you mentioned there uh, that they had heard about things that you thought that they hadn't before, that there was the Quran mentioned things like like Jesus, you know, and Isa, yeah. as they say, and, and talk about the people of the book in what we would think of as the Old Testament, um, which brings us to this concept of what is an Abrahamic faith? What does that mean? Uh, I think people typically, when they think of the Abrahamic faith, they think of Christianity and Judaism. Mm -hmm. Islam usually gets left out of the discussion unless you're talking to people that have worked with Muslims, but Muslims tie themselves back to Abraham as well. Um, the lineage of Muhammad, whether it's uh, accurate or not, goes back through Ishmael. And mm -hmm. Ishmael is known as sort of father of the Arab world. And uh, so Muslims and Christians and Jews all share this sort of narrative that we all come from Abraham. I mean, in reality, you know, Muslims go back further. They would say that Adam was truly the first Muslim, that Eve was truly right. the first Muslim. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't stop at Abraham. They would keep going back and saying, no, actually the creation story that we have in the Bible, it's very similar. Um, there's a few differences, mm -hmm. but by and large, we share a very similar story, right? God creates Adam out of dirt, and then he creates Eve out of the side of man. Uh, then God gives them, places them in a garden and says, you can eat from any tree, but you want to avoid this one. And, you know, the most Muslims, I think, would say it was the tree of life, not the tree of knowledge. There's a little difference there, and you can mm -hmm. build all sorts of theologies out of that. But they end up eating of the tree that God says not to eat off of. Um, and then they're, they realize that they're naked. God provides coverings for them, and then God places them on the earth. But it isn't in a sense of judgment. It isn't in a sense of any sort of punishment. It really is out of God's original desire to have mm. man function as a vice regent or representative of God on the earth. Right. And so they're forgiven in the garden. And I'd never considered whether or not Adam and Eve were forgiven until a Muslim asked me that. Did God forgive Adam and Eve? I'd never even thought about that. Uh, they asked, Jeez, why did God podcast itself? <laughs> yeah. Why did God remove Adam and Eve from the garden? Yeah. All of my evangelical Protestant tradition had told me was that God could not be in the presence of sin. And that's like the, the textbook Sunday school answer. Right. But I'd never like actually gone and looked to see like, is that what the Bible says? And yeah. lo and behold, no, it doesn't. It says right. that God removed them from the garden so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of eternal life. Yeah. So that just brought up all sorts of questions in my mind, like, okay, so why did God remove them? To keep them from eating of eternal life. So is this God's judgment or is this God's mercy? Like, I just had all, like, I've found and I encourage people, like, the more you study Islam as a Christian, the deeper walk you will actually have in your own Christian faith, if you do it charitably. Like, if you really mm -hmm. do ask the questions that Muslims are asking and think through them and see the validity of the question, hopefully, I think at the end of the day, you'll have a deeper, more rich relationship with your own tradition 
by having another tradition sort of shine a, a spotlight on issues that you may not have even considered. Right. Kind of the blind spots, things you hadn't even yeah. said, thought I about. Never really thought about. Other. Just kind of kept going with it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it's interesting because those two creation stories, they do have one difference that I, I would emphasize that maybe other people might not. Um, when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and placed on the earth, God says that uh, he will provide messengers. So mm-hmm. Adam and Eve are told, like, it's okay, you're leaving the garden, but don't worry. Allah is going to provide you messengers. They will guide you onto the straight path. Um, but mankind's chief problem is that we, we are ignorant and that we forget so we'll have God's guidance, then we'll forget it, or we'll intentionally walk away from it, and then God sends more messengers to bring us back on the straight path. Essentially, man is not in any sort of condition or does not have any sort of problem that cannot be solved in and of himself through following the message and the guidance of Allah, which is pretty different than Very the Christian different. narrative, right? Like, you are in a situation that you actually cannot fix in and of yourself. You're born into this, and you're dead in your trespasses. Right. And a and dead so, person can't do anything. But the promise that we're given as Adam and Eve are removed from the garden is not necessarily guidance and guidance alone. We're promised that eventually someone will come that will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, which is what scholars call the the proto-evangelion, right? The first preaching of the gospel that Christ is going to come and he is going to conquer, destroy the works of the devil and free mankind from his bondage to the enemy. So that, that concept is very clear in like Genesis three fifteen. Mm. It doesn't exist in Islam. It's messengers. So there's a there's there is a difference in the creation narrative yeah. that already begins to sort of see how theology would would part ways over the issues of atonement, need for a savior. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what I was about to ask: is at, at what point do they separate? Me thinking that the answer is you know Ishmael and Isaac, when yeah. in reality it's it's the first it's the first two. It starts right there, but Ishmael and Isaac is the one that people hear a lot and, and that they'll just blanket statement throw for, this is why there's so much strife and conflict as these two brothers are at war. And so I was wondering, like, what perspective does does that play into it and that understanding of two different brothers and lineages play into yeah. the story as well? I was teaching at a church, and I just asked, you know, there's like, I think at that point there's like 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, why are they not being one for the gospel? Like, what are the issues? What are the barriers? What's keeping people from hearing the gospel? And this mm-hmm. this guy, like, literally shouts with great passion from the back, because the children of Isaac will never share their inheritance with the children of Ishmael. And I'm like, okay, we're definitely changing course at this point. Like, yeah. I have to address this. Like, he's bringing up this passage out of Galatians that Paul specifically says, now, this is a metaphor. <laughs> Right, right off the bat. And he talks about like there's children of the slave and there's children of the law. And mm-hmm. the irony behind all of this is when you look at Galatians, even though that, that it's a metaphor, he was suggesting that this was about Arabs and Muslims or Muslims and Christians. Yeah. And I was like, you do realize this has to do with like the Judaizers, those who received to uh, refuse to let go of the law and the covenant of law and the right. covenant of grace. Like the irony here is that he had read Muslims into the Bible. Right. When it wasn't there, there was no Islam. There was no Muhammad yet. He was reading right. Muslims into the Bible. This is what Paul meant. And the irony was like, this is actually about more Jews and Christians. I mean, it's, that's anachronistic to say that because there isn't Jews and Christians at this point. It's like those of the law and those of right. the covenant of grace. So it was just really ironic. And I just thought, man, how many people are reading really weird things into the Bible because they're looking at it through their own sort of lens? And that's what got read back in, right? Even mm-hmm. the prophecy about Ishmael, they'll read back into like, oh, this must be about Muhammad. And they'll interpret that prophecy in a really weird way. Like he's a wild donkey of a man. And I'm like, is that a curse? Sounds like a blessing if you're born into bondage. If you're a donkey in the Bible, it's a good thing. Maybe not today. Right. Maybe if I called somebody a donkey, if I, especially if I use the King James version <laughs> of the word, people wouldn't think of it as a good thing. But the reality is that was a blessing, yeah. you know, in, in Scripture. So I think that's what ends up happening is people frame everything in the 21st century through sort of looking at a biblical lens and then trying to see Islam and Christianity through this biblical lens. And I'm like, they didn't exist. They didn't coexist at that point. 
and it's a really weird reading of scripture, but it's happening. I mean, just, you just go on the internet. There's all sorts of sermons out there that are very bizarre about yeah. Muslims. I just read straight into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think the stories have a lot of overlap. There's a lot in common. There's definitely some issues that have to be sort of worked out and seeing where, where do we differ and how do we continue to, di- I mean, I think it's important. Like we get along, we view each other charitably. If you, mm-hmm. if you look at half of the world claiming to either be Christian or Muslim, the fact that they interact well together is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, it's half the world's population. So we need to think about how we interact. We can't just sort of sit on two sides of a, a road and like throw rocks at each other and say mm-hmm. we're right and you're wrong. And that, I don't know that that's really helpful. And I don't know that Christians that do that are necessarily doing their best to live peaceably with people. It's more like I'm trying to prove myself right by making you wrong. Mm-hmm. My contention is I don't need to prove Islam wrong, right, at all. That's not my goal in life. Um, I don't need to make Muhammad look bad to make Jesus look good. Like Jesus looks great all on his own. I want to learn what Muslims think about Muhammad, not what I think about Muhammad. Mm. So it's just a different approach, I guess. Yeah. So as we go into this conversation and and Christianity and Islam and Judaism, um, we'll dive into Islam first specifically and then into Judaism uh, but what's one thing before we dive into Islam that you would want listeners to keep in mind as we have this conversation? Uh, probably that uh, Muslims are people first and Muslims second. Like mm. We tend to frame people through sort of a religious identity and to think in terms of all, you know, Islam teaches. And I'm like, Islam isn't actually a thing. Like people believe, right? And mm-hmm. people interpret uh, you can't say things like Islam teaches, like the, the Islamic faith is incredibly diverse, incredibly diverse, equally diverse as Christianity. But some people want to go and say, no, 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 you got to get to the true nature of what Islam is. And I'm like, mm. yeah, what would that be? Like, who has it? And yeah. where do I go to talk to them? And then you'll find out quickly that they've they've determined that there is a true nature and it's this way, despite the fact that you know, 90% of the faith might not agree with that way. They somehow figured it out. So I would encourage people to think not in terms of Islam. If you must think in terms of Islam, think in terms of Islams, Hmm. multiple Islams out there. Um, But I would encourage people to think in terms of uh, Muslim. Like there's lots of Muslims who all believe different things. Some things they hold in common, many things they hold uh, indifference. And so what is the Muslim that is my neighbor or my friend believe rather than what do I think they believe, because I read this one article online by this guy who was explaining the true nature of Islam. Mm. Yeah. So as we get into it now, the very beginning, and it's a, it, it's a great follow-up question to that, with that idea of that there are many Islams and, and those thought perspectives, what's what's the foundation on? What are the, the pillars of Islam that, that they really claim? Like, these are the, th- the big core things. It depends who you ask. I mean... Y- you can go on Wikipedia and look up five pillars of Islam. Chances mm-hmm. are like 99% of the time they're right. Somebody might go in there and like put an odd pillar in there on occasion. It gets corrected really quickly, but like you can go and look, these are the five pillars, the basic sort of practices that every Muslim should engage in. But, uh, and then you've got principles of faith, you know, those are important too. you know, God has holy books. There is an eternal judgment. There is, you know, paradise, God sends prophets and there's sort of these you know, angels and all all these things matter, I think, to most all Muslims. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be so much difference and nuance as to how those things actually work out in their daily lives. It's like we could all say, like, for the Christian, I think we could all say, maybe I could be wrong here, right? Um, I think Christians would say, like, we can all agree that God has made man in his image. Mm. And that's important. Yeah. Now, how our daily lives actually live that principle out is going to look different. Some people would say, mm. you know, because man is made in God's image, I'm pacifistic. Other people would say, because God is made in man's image, I can't be pacifistic. And so you have these radically differing views about how we're supposed to live out treating people who are created in the image of God. Mm. Pretty basic fundamental doctrine of Christianity. And then you see all these sort of divergent ideas about how that's lived out. And you see it throughout church history. Um, you know, we could all agree that Christ rose from the dead. 
Like that's a pretty basic, like I think that's a pretty basic fundamental Christian principle, right? Like Christ died and Christ rose. Christ is coming again. When is he coming again? Lots of differing views. Oh yeah. What happened when he died? Lots of differing views. Like what impact did his death actually have on all of humanity or parts of humanity or only a few people in humanity? Like lots of differing views. What does his resurrection mean? Lots of differing views. We can all agree he died, he rose, he's coming again. How those things get worked out into people's practical daily lives and theological doctrines and perspectives is going to be different across the globe, Mm -hmm. across history. So Muslims have the same issues, right? Muhammad's like a key factor. Which Muhammad, though? Like, Muhammad uh, can take on sort of many different character traits depending on the Muslim you're talking to. Some Muslim might emphasize this aspect of his life. Another Muslim might em- emphasize this aspect of his life. But I think Muhammad's kind of like a common, like, that's a, a given. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Quran, of course, would be another one. Muhammad didn't write the Quran. It's a book that he was essentially the mouthpiece for. It was mm-hmm. given by Allah through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad and then later written down uh, by people as an oral tradition. Uh, but even the Quran, people would say, well, yeah, but you got to get to the core of the religion, which is the Quran. And I'm like, okay, like, so who has the authoritative interpretation? Like, who who's that person? Mm-hmm. And of course, they've got their person they've picked. Like, this is the true Muslim and I'm going, you know, you do realize that, like, a bunch of other Muslims would disagree with that guy. Right. Like, that's not the representation of the faith. So I think at that, at that point you just have to acknowledge that there's an incredible amount of diversity just as much as in Christianity mm. and viewing people through a lens of charity, wanting to understand them, not sort of helping yourself to agree with whatever it is that you already believe about what real Islam is, right. is, is helpful. And I think that's, I love what you said earlier where it's the idea of being charitable with one another's faith Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, you, you, you walk in the Christian life and you don't even realize that you have those things existing within your own faith mindset, that there are these differing perspectives within Christianity and you just kind of don't think about it and you're like, we're all good. But then as soon as another faith has the same issues, you're like, ah, see, gotcha. Yeah. But it's the same concepts falling out. And and that's the interesting thing, too, is that for every theological controversy that uh, Christianity has tried to work out over two millennia, like Muslims have dealt with the same things, mm-hmm. you know, like the is God immutable? Is he changeable or is God active in time and space? Is is man uh, sinful? And if so, how much uh, does man have free will or is God's sovereignty over override his like all these mm-hmm. debates that are in Christianity? Muslims have had over the same amount of time. Yeah. And it's created a incredible diverse community of interpreters. Yeah, absolutely. And as we talk about that concept of a, a diverse community, how does that community engage with one another with a, a common culture? but also differing theologies. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that you could say there's a common culture. I mean, Islam stretches all the way from Indonesia, right, up all the way through Asia into the Middle East and then even over into the United States. The diaspora communities and the amount of migration movements has shifted, you know, theological perspectives to cultural perspectives. I mean, culture is incredibly fluid. There isn't like even when people use the terms like there's an Arab culture, it's different depending on where you are in the Arab world, right? There mm-hmm. may be some commonality, um, but the reality is even youth culture within the Arab world is very different than maybe the previous generation's culture. Like, yeah, it's constantly shifting. So I, I think the commonality may be like kind of if you're asking like what's the lowest common denominator that draws the Muslim world together, I would say, you know, love for uh, Prophet Muhammad and respect for his mission in the Quran Mm. and maybe in a negative sense, uh, the injustice that's been done to the Palestinians with the establishment of Israel in 1948 and the illegal settlements. Like most Muslims have great, a great deal of sense that this was unjust Mm -hmm. and sort of mutual support for the Palestinian cause can be a very cohesive factor for any Muslim across any place. And then another negative one might be, uh, mutual frustration with the United States and foreign policy. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And that just goes kind of, I mean, we're seeing it today with Afghanistan, right? Like this will become propaganda for the recruitment of Muslim radicals over time. It just inevitably mm-hmm. will be. And that continues to happen time and time again, where, you know, 
either you create the us them narrative where us comes with the clear defining of who them is and mm-hmm. that can be something that it draws muslims together but not to say that every muslim has a frustration towards the united states many muslims love the united states particularly muslims that live here muslims that have encountered you know american soldiers that have been very kind to them and blessed them in many ways uh but for the radical sex the more uh, antagonistic Muslim sort of a mutual frustration or even dislike of, of the West can mm. be a, a cohesive factor. So how does the historical uh, perspectives of Islam play into modern outworkings of Islam? Because, I mean, you think of the Ottoman Empire that, you know, people grew up learning about, and then you think of the caliphs before that that were um, in the Middle East and North Africa and Spain. Um, how do those histories... Um, and the incredible inventions and scientific progress in geometry and the sciences, um, how does that history inform the outworkings of engagement today? It it depends. For some Muslims, it's uh, important in the idea of restoration of the caliphate that was abolished in 1924, especially for groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, maybe even the Taliban might have some ideas about what a new Islamic caliphate would look like having Afghanistan as a new Islamic emirate. But that's not the norm for most Muslims. Mm. Most Muslims are thinking about, like, how do I get my kid into a good college? Mm. You know, how do I make sure that my daughter or my son marries somebody that's going to be a good fit with our family? Like, And that's, that's kind of the funny thing. I... I almost think about it in terms of like Christianity, like we have, right, right. We have the Holy spirit like living within us and most Christians on a daily basis, like their daily concerns are not religious in nature. Like they're just kind of like, how am I going to, you know, make sure that my kid does well on this exam mm-hmm. or I how am I going to sure pay this bill? You pay this yeah. bill. Like we're not overly overtly theologically minded all the time. And neither are Muslims. Most Muslims are, that's why I say it's important to think of them as just people, right? People first and happen to be Muslim. Um, but those that are really motivated by sort of a resurgence of the past, seeing the Ottoman Empire, seeing the great uh, Islamic uh, movements of intellectualism that happen in Syria and Baghdad, like in the ninth and 10th century, mm-hmm. they will use those ideas to say like, there needs to be a revival that, that we've been sort of pushed down and now it's time to raise up again. But that's, it's not a large percentage of the Muslim community. Like, I don't think I know many Muslims that are even aware of that history, that that's the thing that they're thinking about all the time. Mm. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Christians, like we're not thinking about like, North Africa and the history of Christianity and the, these sort of great kingdoms of right. North Africa. Like it's not in our mind. Most people aren't reading Augustine on the weekends. Like you might, I don't right. know. You might, I don't. CIU grad. <laughs> so in that sense, some Muslims are really impacted by it and it makes, it kind of gives them a daily sense of like purpose and being, but I don't think that's the majority. I yeah. don't think there's a major class of civil clash of civilizations going on. I think most Muslims, uh, if you sat down and said, so how does this history impact your life? They would be like, I'm just trying to get by. Like, that's not, it's not my world. Or they might be hearing about it for the first time. They're like, Oh yeah, they're like, could be. they're like, what? <laughs> they're like, wait a second. What are you talking about? Hold on. Yeah. So, and that's the other thing too, is because of that diversity, um, you know, we, we don't tend to think about like the great, you know, empires, the Muslim empire in India. We think of India as like Hindu. Yeah. But, uh, Muslims living in India might, and if they are, it might be because they currently feel like the rise of Hindu nationalism, the rallying cry may become Islam. Mm. So sometimes our own attempts to minimize people's religious faith might actually increase a religious identity that wasn't previously there. And the thing that might be driving it might be political may have nothing to do with religion, but religion's like a really, really good thing that you can draw people around, create a cohesive sense of identity, and then get people to act out on that. I mean, as Blaise Pascal that said, like, you know, people will definitely commit murder, but if you give them religious reason, you know, all the more will they do it. And he wasn't talking about Muslims, he's talking about anyone. Yeah. So it's like, if you can give people a religious motivation for doing something, you know, it's a pretty good motivator. So I mean, Muslims aren't the only ones guilty of this. Christians have done it, yeah. you know every major religion in the world at some point in time has used violence as a means to sort of 
gather everybody around a popular idea that right. might not have had anything to do with religion. And you see that a ton in the Reformation for yeah. like two, three hundred years. Of, okay, of so fighting each other. That's a good point. Like the most violent years might be right the years of the Reformation. So if you think about Islam currently sort of in this space of like reformation, you're Mm -hmm. seeing sort of the traditional schools of law break down. You're seeing sort of the regional areas where the schools of law are implemented become sort of more transnational. There's a lot more sort of cross-pollination of ideas. You've got like YouTube preachers out there. You've got a guy claiming to be the caliphate with absolutely no support from the Muslim world. Like all these things are happening and there's like splinter movements happening and nobody's really sure like who is... Who are the Muslims? Yeah. I mean, that sounds a lot like the Reformation, right? Like you've got these splinter groups. Interesting story. If you just have time to go one day, look, I think I wrote an article about it. The the radical Anabaptist movement of Munster, where a guy like shows up, determines like everybody has to have, you know, believers baptism or you have to leave the city or be killed. And I'm like, hmm, I've heard these options before. Like you have to either submit, you know, you know, do this the way that I think it should be done to kill. Yeah. And this city of Munster just sort of like falls apart and they have the, they basically can't get food and everybody's starving inside. Some people leave, some people are killed, but this guy's like having visions and dreams about how he's the new prophet David and he's to rule the city of Munster. This is the new ushering in the kingdom. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that was happening when you have the legitimate internal reformation, you're always going to have sort of like splinter groups that go out. Yeah. And we have to be careful that we, we don't make those the norms. Like, that right. wasn't the norm of Anabaptist theology. That was a right. really weird, like, city of Munster, what was this guy doing? You know, him and his buddy, they're very strange ideas. So I think about that with the Muslim world, like, they are going through some internal reformation. There mm-hmm. is jockeying of position. Unfortunately, it's also tied to, similar to the Reformation, like, nation states and power. And so you have all these splinter groups, and I think we just have to be really careful that we don't start making the conclusion, not being of the Muslim community, what Islam really is and who are the right ones. Like, mm. I wouldn't want non-Christians telling me who the real Christians are. Right. Like, that, that just doesn't feel right. Like, you don't even understand the community. You don't even know the community. Mm. You read a few angry blogs, and now you think you know all of, you know, what Christians are. So... Real simple, like third grade theology, like do unto others mentality. Like, I don't think it's my place to tell the Muslim community what the Muslim community is. I want to hear mm. from them and hear as many voices as I can. I think, I mean, that's, I think that's the perfect way to wrap up that conversation on, on Islam because that, I think that is, that just goes back to that core that we talked about at the very beginning where it's let's engage the people mm-hmm. as people. And let's remember that a lot of the difficulties that we want to, point a finger at, especially when they're being informed by nationalism and by politics, have already happened to, to our own faith before. Yeah. And and to see these these things happening and to give grace and mercy and, and just have conversations and love neighbors. Yeah. yeah. So now jumping into the, the Judaism side of the conversation and into that uh, vein of Abrahamic faith, I was, I was wondering um, what's something that you think listeners should keep in mind as we talk now about the, the, the Judaism Abrahamic faith. I, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask. I don't know a lot. I could tell you what like the Abrahamic faith and Judaism looks like in relationship to Islam, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know a lot about Judaism other than from that sort of lens of Christianity and that lens of Islam. Yeah. But Steve Johnson would be a good person to ask about, about Judaism. I think the important thing to recognize from a Muslim perspective. Sure. Um, is that there There can be a lot of frustration with the sort of modern movements towards Zionism, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of frustration by a lot of Muslims towards evangelical support of Zionism. Um, m- Muslims, I think, and as a whole, um, are not anti-Semitic, mm. but there definitely are some anti-Semitic Muslims, for sure, that... that are having a hard time separating the idea of like Jews and Israel. Mm. But the, the shift from Judaism, from being a spirituality into a nation state and sort of a political idea, I think is really important to realize that many Muslims and Jews have gotten along for a very long time. 
and there are Jews living in under the protection of Muslim communities that have been safe for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But when that idea of Judaism and Palestine and Israel all gets tied together and there's no clear sort of defining mark, that's when it can just get really ugly. And I think most people on the ground, like most Jews, most Muslims, most Christians, they know something is going on that's beyond their control and they want their like i said their kids to grow up mm-hmm. and have good educations like their kids to be uh, have access to like healthcare and things like that and the political things that are happening that are like a thousand foot above what they're actually they have a say in are just exhausting people mm-hmm. and so as far as judaism goes every every muslim as far as i can understand has to believe in, in Moses, you know, in the right. Torah. I mean, it's written in, in the Quran that, that God revealed the Torah, right? And it's called the Torah, and Muslims should look to it and understand, like, what God revealed to the prophets from before, including mm-hmm. Moses, Abraham, you know, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, all these prophets exist within Islam. But I think sort of the modern us-them narratives often pits Muslims and Jews against each other, and uh, that's really unfortunate because I think, before these political things were happening, Muslims and Jews were, by and large, getting along quite well. Right. Um, not always. Um, Jews and Christians weren't always getting along well. I mean, the anti-Semitism that exists within Christianity is horrific. Absolutely. Um, so I think there's this sense of there has to be, and there is some movement towards this, there has to be the ability for Jews, Muslims, and Christians to sit down together and talk and learn from one another and value each other's input. It's not to suggest that we're all going to sit down and sing Kumbaya and say everyone is right and no one, you know, there's, you know, multiple truths or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is value to me sitting down and hearing what someone else believes to be true. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a threat to what I believe to be true. It is possible for uh, us to sit down and recognize that we both think we're right Mm-hmm. And ultimately, neither one of us are going to know with certainty who was right until the day when Christ reveals, right? Or the Muslim would say the day when Jesus returns, because they do believe in a return of Jesus. They don't believe he didn't, wasn't crucified and resurrected, but he will return. Only then are we going to be able to know, right? Like right. God is going to reveal like, okay, and chances are Christians have some things wrong. Chances are Muslims have some things wrong. Chances are Jews have some things wrong. What we know for sure is what we do know, we know in part, but we have this hope that the Holy Spirit helps us along, helps us to understand, and we have this hope that Christ is ultimately, for me, I mean, he is the best representation of what God is like, right? Mm. He is the divine, uh, he is fully, you know, fully God, he is God incarnate, and he, the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. So the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the words of Christ are the thing that, like, get me up in the morning and thing I think about before I go to bed. Mm. Um, but that would not hinder me from sitting with a Muslim who says, listen, I don't believe he was divine. I mean, I wouldn't be like, oh, we can't talk together now. Like, yeah, I would want to know, like, well, tell me what you do know about Jesus. Mm. So I, I, I don't know what to say about Judaism other than to say that um, I, I think the Jews have suffered time and time again. They've been used as the scapegoat throughout world history, uh, largely by the Christians, maybe, mm. I think maybe even more so than the Muslims. Yeah. And uh, there needs to be some real sense of like corporate repentance um, on behalf of all three faiths and the ways that they've treated each other over the years. And there needs to be a new generation that comes up and says, listen, I'm not trying to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. Um, I want to live faithfully. Like I, as a Christian, want to live faithfully for the sake of the gospel, faithfully represent Christ as he's revealed in Scripture and his church tradition. Like I don't want to go outside of orthodoxy in front of my Muslim friends Mm -hmm. in hopes that ultimately the only one that can reveal truth being God himself, the Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit, would transform their hearts. Yeah but I'm not going to like sort of dust off my feet if a Muslim doesn't like, okay, we're not friends now. Like that just seems wrong. One of the things that I've always been fascinated about when we talk about these Abrahamic faiths, that we all have that Christianity, Judaism, Islam, I'll trace that line back um, and look at this, one of these very common points. And then we have uh, Messianic Judaism and we have Christianity. Is there, because I I had... I had remembered hearing about this concept of like almost messianic Islam. 
with the idea of Jesus and Esau. And I was wondering if there is an allotment for Judaism, would there be an allotment for Islam at all? Yeah, it depends who you ask. There, it would be something that's often referred to as the insider movement, the idea. You'll see people draw it uh, like in sort of diagrams. They'll say that ultimately what we're about, and they'll put it at the center of the diagram, they'll say, we're about the kingdom of God. And that you have some Christians that are in the kingdom of God and some Christians that may not be in the kingdom of God because they actually don't believe in the kingdom of God. They've sort of just been religious and whatever, but they're not part of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And then you would say that there are some Jews who are part of the kingdom of God, Messianic Jews. And the question would be, so if a Muslim is outside of the kingdom of God, does he need to come through Christianity in order to get into the kingdom of God? Or is it possible for him to just be moved into the kingdom of God and fully retain a sense of being Muslim, fully submitted to God? Hugely debated topic. I have a two-part podcast on uh, Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse where the I think the title of the episode was Can a Muslim be a faithful... Uh, can, a, can, a, can a Muslim follow Jesus and remain a faithful Muslim? And mm. it's like an hour-long discussion about the issues related to that and yeah. where the controversies lie. But that's the concept, like this idea of a Messianic Muslim is can they come into the kingdom of God and... a bypass sort of the idea of Christianity is there sort of a bigger idea that they can participate in and this is hugely controversial yeah yeah for our listeners and watchers that link is in the comment section if you want to check that out after this yeah you won't forget the name I mean Muslims Christians and the zombie <laughs> apocalypse like that's a pretty remember memorable oh, yeah. title <laughs> yeah so I don't know if there's, uh, I, I, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I understand the arguments on both sides. I think it's still early to tell what that's going to look like. These insider movements are relatively new within the past 75 years, maybe. Mm. Um, so I, I don't think we can say with any certainty. My, my hope would be that if somebody follows Jesus, that they would decide that they wanted to align themselves with Christianity on a global scale. Um, but the church hasn't always been good at doing that, right? Mm -hmm. We're pretty good at like barring people and sort of drawing our boundary lines, even within our own faith. Yeah. I will say that within Islam, for at least 200 years after the death of Muhammad, there was not a clear boundary line between Muslim, Christian, like the, the ideas that we are Christians and you are other really didn't exist um, until probably the ninth century. Mm. Um, the eighth century and you know, in the, in the late 600s and 700s, you, you were just looked at, Muslims were looked at by and large by Christians as a strange form of Christianity that had very mm -hmm. differing views regarding uh, the divinity of Jesus, which for the first 600 years, I mean, that's really the debate within Christianity. Like nobody was debating who, whether Jesus was the Messiah. They were debating about what did that mean? Yeah. Um, Muslims are the same way. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they debate what that actually means. Yeah. Um, is he divine? Is he human? How much human? How much divine? Does he have a divine will, a human will? Does he have a divine mind, a human mind? Like all these debates that existed within Christianity for 600 years sort of come to a, a, a head with Islam and they just say, listen, we'll solve it once for all. He's human. Mm. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, some of the early Christian heresies. And that's what, that's the way Christians viewed them. Yeah. I didn't look at them as a separate religion. So it's interesting to see sort of the progression of what makes a Muslim Muslim. How do they begin to sort of self-define themselves? It's kind of like looking at Christianity for the first hundred years. Like it wasn't looked at as like opposite of Judaism. It was yeah. simply a movement within Judaism, right? right? Like a movement of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And I think it's probably more so the early Jews that were like, you guys are different. Like, yeah. So the Romans are like, what? <laughs> yeah. And they start calling them Christians, which I think was most likely a pejorative term. Uh, so Muslims aren't even called Muslims for the first hundred years. They're called wow. Hagarines or Mohammedans or just wow. the Arabs. Yeah. Um, so there isn't this defining term of like, you guys are different than us. It was more like, you guys believe some things that are different than we do, but we still share the same belief in God and we share the belief in that Jesus is the Messiah. And then mm -hmm. it's later that these things become like super clearly defined differences. Yeah. That is fascinating. I mean, that was one of the things that I remember studying in, in history of global Christianity is you see these early heretics of the Christian faith and they're exiled instead of killed, but they're exiled to that part of the world and you see their theology defining a lot of the theology of the East 
and, and talking about those things, I'm like, that's fascinating. Yeah. Like those conversations just kind of kept happening. And it's funny now to look back because I think most people are unwilling to even suggest that who was defined as a heretic. Like we have writings right. now, we're able to look <laughs> back and go, this might have been a political move. It sounds to me like Jacob actually believed the things that, you know, the Chalcedonian Creed was saying and that he was really kind of set up. Or I'm not sure that Nestorius was as Nestorian as he was made out to be. Right. And that, that was like a negative term. And now we look at it as Eastern Christianity. So I think we've learned a lot of our own infighting and realized that maybe there was more going on that met the eye. Mm. I think we have to at least assume that Muslims are experiencing the same thing. And it would be terrible for us to kind of from the outside in say, you know, we know who the right ones are and right. you guys don't know. Like we, we have to stop doing that. Absolutely. This has been an incredible conversation. This is, this is awesome. I have always loved, I mean, I had classes with you being challenged by these perspectives of looking further into our own history and recognizing the grace that we need even for ourselves. And to now, in our perspective, have an opportunity to give grace uh, to another group of people yeah. who are going through similar situations. Absolutely. And, and, be a faithful witness to who you believe Christ to be. Mm. Like you're not, you're not going to offend a Muslim by upholding Christ as your Lord. Like right. they, they, they already think you do that. So why not just <laughs> do that? Yeah. And don't, don't try to go out of your way not to be offensive by adoring Christ. Like that's okay. They expect you to do that. Right. So I, I just think sometimes people are like, well, we want to get along. So we don't want to bring Jesus into the mix. I'm like, um, pretty sure they know you believe Jesus is God. <laughs> in fact, they might actually un misunderstand some of the ways in which you actually believe. So you should talk about it. Like, right. let's not look for lowest common denominator. Like you believe in God, we believe in God. So we're good. Like, let's just not fight. Like, no, sit down with people and actually yeah. ask them and be faithful to what you believe. Don't, don't pull back. Don't hedge on things that are like part of the Orthodox tradition. Like it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Explain the Trinity. Go with the creed. This is what I believe. Like, don't just say, I'm going to avoid the Trinity. Like, no, it's okay. Talk about it, yeah. Chances are they don't know what you believe. Talk about it. Now, if the reality is you don't know what you believe when it comes to the Trinity, you probably don't want to talk about it. Like, <laughs> probably look it up. Do a little homework. Stick to a yeah. creed. Memorize one of those creeds and just go with that. They're like, explain the Trinity. Like, uh, we believe in one God, the Father. <laughs> just yeah. start, start quoting it. Don't go out on a limb and try to come up with an analogy that makes sense to you, but it's ultimately <laughs> going to be heresy somewhere along the line. I've figured it out in this one second of yeah, thought. <laughs> right, right. Not a good idea. So as we as we close the conversation on these things, if you could say one thing to every uh, a Jewish or Muslim person wondering about Christianity, uh, what would you say to them? I'd say sorry. Mm. Um I'm sorry the people of Christ have not always uh, represented Christ. That was his intention, right? That we would be the body of Christ, that we would live uh, in harmony, and that we would draw people to himself through our great love for each other and our great love for those who are not yet part of the kingdom. Mm. And we've not done that well. Um, it's really sad when you have to tell somebody, like, hey, just look at Jesus, don't look at his people. Like, Mm. when we're supposed to actually be like the probably the hands and feet of Jesus to the people, but we're having to like make excuses for ourselves all the time. Um, I wish, I wish, I wish that we could understand how important it is for the church to remain faithful to the gospel, to love others well, to fir seek first and foremost the kingdom of God and not any other kingdom ideology that we might have and that we would... Um, ultimately be Jesus to people and that they might in turn mm. respond and say, man, if that's what Jesus is like, I want to follow him. I feel like so many people are saying like, if that's what Jesus is like, I want nothing to do with him. And that's just, mm. um, yeah, I feel bad about that. Yeah. And if you could say one thing to every Christian who's wondering about Judaism or Islam, what would you say? I would say Stop listening to people who are not part of that faith community as being the only voice in your life that explains that faith community. Like, if you want to learn about Islam, talk to a Muslim. The only reason that I'm teaching Christians about Muslims is because they won't listen to Muslims themselves, by and large. 
Mm. I would much rather a Muslim be the one that says, hey, here's what we believe. Um, don't just read books. Don't just go to the library. Don't just open the Quran. Go to the mosque, meet people, um, and, and realize, like, if you're really interested, genuinely interested in a religion, you need to look at not just the religion, but you need to look at the community that actually embodies that religion. Mm. Absolutely. And the same thing's true with the synagogues and with rabbis and, and people in the Jewish community. Just engage. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've never, uh, never been close with a rabbi, but I think it would be awesome to, instead of it being like the beginning of a joke, like a, a imam and a <laughs> rabbi and a pastor walk into a bar. Um, I think it would be great if we had more of that kind of sitting down and hearing. I'd love to hear a rabbi and imam, you know, and a mm. pastor like sit down. And my suspicion is if, if those three sat down together and said, what do you guys want to talk about? My suspicion is the, the conversations wouldn't center around doctrine. They would center around just very genuine, like heartfelt needs of like what humans experience. Yeah. Um, Especially if they're in the same city, what does our community need? Yeah. What's and it would be cool if they started serving together. I think the threat to so many <laughs> evangelicals is like, but we got to be firm on the gospel. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> You don't have to go out and tell people they're wrong. Like, it's okay. Like, you do need to actually faithfully represent what you believe, but don't think of it in terms of, like, an either-or. Like, if I'm serving with a—if I go out and I serve the homeless with my Muslim friend, he might think that I think he's wrong. I'm like, if you live your whole life that way, like, you'll never do anything. Like, people yeah. are always going to be reading into what you're doing. But what you do need to do is just be a faithful representation of what you believe. Live it. Live it boldly. Don't hedge on anything and just simply be who you are for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the church. And don't think about it in terms of like, did I, did I uh, make sure that they understood that I think they're wrong? Like, hmm. <laughs> the whole, it seems like a bad the Holy Spirit. Spot the Holy Spirit, like, is really good at his job, right? Like, he's going to convict the world of sin. He's not taking job applications, like, it, but we're constantly being like. I'm not sure that they understood how much of a sinner they are. I need to tell them or something like that. Like we have these really weird ideas yeah. in our head. And I think most of the time they're based out of insecurity. Mm. And I think we just need to get over our own insecurity, accept the fact that some people believe differently than us. It's not a threat to our belief system. It's okay. And we need to faithfully get in the trenches and loving and serving people alongside those people. So they might actually see how Christ has transformed our lives. Yeah, I think it's stepping out in that that knowledge of the truth of if the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, your conversation is fine to have with someone. You you walking next to someone isn't going to be the thing that makes it all tumble down, but it's the thing that we're supposed to do and engage the world and be the representatives of Christ everywhere. Yeah. I mean, Jesus is, is pretty attractive to people, right? Yeah. I think if we sometimes just get out of the way and actually <laughs> actually represent him well— more people would be like, man, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> but most of the time our actions or our words are speaking like so loudly that we never even get to Jesus. Like mm. we're too busy, like insulting other people's belief systems or something. Man, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit down with us and, and, and talk about these things. Yeah. I hope it's helpful to your listeners. I hope so too. Yeah. It's been helpful to me. So that's one at least. Okay. Well, then there it's we worth go. it. Hopefully it's helpful to your cameraman. I don't know. Yeah, here saying. we go. Sean's like, yeah, this is good <laughs> At least stuff. two people it was helpful for. I mean, it's, you know, that's good. <laughs> there we go. That's how you start, right? Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We appreciate you guys uh, throughout this season. It's been a joy to produce this podcast and to continue producing it. If you want to hear about something, please drop it in the comment section so that we can continue to produce material that is beneficial to your walk and your life with Christ. Thank you so much for an excellent second season, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Hope you have a great day.